0: a.m. and welcome to the third edition of the late podcast that's the law according to Eric not to be confused with the late show or any other trademarked or copywritten late uh, broadcast out there. Uh, Coming to you this morning from Woodland Hills, California in this central district uh, area of the United States Bankruptcy Court. Here with me today is a very special in-studio guest the, probably the very first attorney I ever met when I decided to engage in the practice of bankruptcy law. Uh, his name is Nate Burnerman. He is a bankruptcy attorney extraordinaire, and I've asked him to come on today so we can talk about some of the cutting-edge issues that Chapter 7 and 13 bankruptcy practitioners are facing today, and the general way in which the bankruptcy world is leaning, new and interesting case developments, uh, and so on. So, Nate, uh, if you will, why don't you tell our four or five listeners out there, um, you know, when did did you start practicing bankruptcy? How long ago?
1: Good morning, everyone. Um, I started bankruptcy probably about 1992, so I've been doing this quite a while. It fell into my lap. had a really good friend that uh, got very ill doing bankruptcy law. Now he's doing a lot better, and he's doing bankruptcy again. My brother and I took over his practice, so that's how I got into it, and I've stuck with it ever since.
0: So for those of you out there, uh, how I met Nate, back in 2006, I you know that's when I took my bar exam. I, I went to you know for those of you that don't know, I went to law school at night. I had been working for Kaiser. Uh, I was in their IT security and compliance group, and I had been going to law school while I was working at Kaiser. And so in 2006, I graduated in June. I took the July bar exam and was blessed to be able to pass it the first time. But there's for those of you out there that don't know or maybe thinking about law school, there's a whole other stack of paperwork that you have to fill out for the bar even after you pass the bar exam or before, you know, if you if you were smart, unlike me, you should have done it beforehand, but there's this whole other thing, there's a background check and what's called the determination of good moral character and it's this whole package and you have to list like every job you've ever had since you were eighteen years old, which of course I was, you know, already in my 30s by the time I was getting ready, so it was a whole lot of stuff to pull up. Um, so I finally submitted everything, and I was waiting for my uh, good, good moral character determination to be concluded, so that way I could be sworn in. So in the meantime, between 2006 and uh, 2008, I stayed with Kaiser, and at that point they would moved me into uh, regulatory compliance, and I got a first sort of um, s- some, some initial exposure into their, their legal department. Um, and after I was uh, determined to have had good moral character um, and sworn in, uh, it, it seems that Kaiser really didn't like to hire attorneys from within their own organization. They, Ooh. yeah, they would go to wow. either these really big firms, you know, that specialize in government, you know, regulation or you know, regulatory compliance or things like that. Um, and so I said, okay, well, I can either stay. Um, as the guy that goes to audit, you know, the pharmacies to make sure all the labels are on right, said, or I can, you know, go out there and try something. So my uh, my ex law partner, who was uh, a student with me in law school at the time, started a little firm together. And at this point, and in, in, you know, towards late two thousand eight, um, the need for bankruptcy uh, had really begun to skyrocket. People were in very bad toxic loans on their homes. People had refinanced themselves to the hilt over and over again, pulled tons of cash out of their, their properties, had a lot of debt. Banks were giving people credit cards uh, with $10, $15,000 credit lines on a regular basis. If these people just happened to own a home even with no equity, they would get three or four different credit cards in the mail, all with these very high credit limits. Getting house loans also. Yeah, home Very loans. Easy non-stated income. Yeah, exactly. Stated income, credit score only. Uh, second lines of credit, revolving lines of credit on their house. People were buying their boats and having fun. And at some point in two thousand eight, early two thousand nine, that bubble started to burst for a lot of people. These these two percent introductory interest rates on home loans started to adjust, or were no longer. Um, available to them and or they'd had what's called negative amortization on their loan which meant that they actually paid less than what a minimum payment would be Uh, and then the unpaid portion would go to the back end of the loan and their balance would continue to increase over time and they didn't realize that that was happening right they wouldn't pay attention they wouldn't read their statements and you had a lot of what I will call predatory lending practices not so much by the banks and I think that's where people get confused you know people like to point the finger at B of A or Washington Mutual at that time or Countrywide, uh, but at the end of the day, really, it were it, it was sort of more of these independent loan brokers that would go out and find every way possible to get somebody a loan, even if they knew they couldn't qualify. They would fill out the applications for their clients and they would state their income for their clients, and you know, I had a great one with that
1: one too. It was unbelievable. A client of mine worked for the bank and he was a mortgage broker filled out paperwork, and we get to court, and there's a, a creditor who's got some of his paperwork from a lawsuit and subpoena documents, and it said that he had stated income of 15000 a month. He said, I'm a mortgage broker. I'm not making that much per month. I was making three or 4000 He signed the loan documents in blank, and his mortgage broker, we had, went ahead and put all these this information into there. So...
0: Yeah, and, and that was happening a lot, uh, and so you so people that needed the the relief that bankruptcy can provide or the opportunity to reorganize some of their debt uh, really started to spike in 2008 and 2009. So here I am having exactly zero experience in any aspect of practicing law, unless it was uh, you know government HIPAA regulations on healthcare protocol or something extremely boring like that. And uh, I was introduced to a guy who also, by the way, happened to have been a, a mortgage broker, or owned a mortgage brokerage company. He said, you know, I could really use somebody that knows how to do bankruptcy. Now, so the listening audience understands, not only did I not really understand what that meant at that time, but a little bit later in the podcast, you'll understand how unscrupulous it was for a mortgage broker to even say that. But I'll get to that later. So, of course, and... and to add a little bit of salt to the story, I actually happened to meet this guy at a poker game. He was talking about, you know, and so I just raised my hand and said, hey, I, I can do bankruptcy. Not really known, So I started getting referrals uh, for new bankruptcy cases. And, uh, you know, so one of the very first cases I ever filed um, was a Chapter 7 case. Chapter 7, uh, by the way, and, you know, Nate, chime in anytime. But Chapter 7 is really what we call a liquidation. Means that uh, you sort of turn everything over to a trustee that gets appointed. It's a a random appointment based on a panel of people that are predetermined. And, you know, you just sort of put your hands up in the air and say, I give up. And if there's anything to liquidate, to pay creditors, go for it. If there's not, there's not. Wipe out my debt and move on. So I get this first Chapter 7, and I'm really excited about it. And I forget the schedule's all filled out and uh, not really understanding the the gravity of what I was doing, and of course, this particular client had, within two weeks, had just bought $3,000 worth of airline tickets on on an active credit card, and had just cash-advanced on another one, um, and she made income of uh, a little over $106,000 a year working for the uh, for, for the city, and we filed Chapter 7, which I'm sure Nate can explain to you why that was such a big mistake, but... So I get a, a letter, uh, an email letter from the office of the United States trustee on your first case. First case wow. says, uh, Mister Mensahamakan, we really need to talk to you about this case, and we'd like you to provide some documents. And now, of course, I'm just having a nervous breakdown. Like, when what is I, this? This is 2008. Okay. So I'm thinking, like, what did I do, and what, what's going on? Anyway, so to make a long story short, we worked it out. and We figured out kind of what was wrong with it. And we were able to kind of get the case moved into a different chapter and. You know, we made nice with the U.S. Trustee's office. That was my first uh, Chapter 7. Not long after that, I had a person come to me that was in danger of losing his home to foreclosure. He was maybe a week or so away from the bank foreclosing. And so we filed a Chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a reorganization. That's where you get the opportunity to pay back certain types of debt over a period of anywhere from three to five years, depending on the percentage you're paying. Um, Most people, it's a five-year repayment plan and you're paying back the secured parts of your debt, meaning missed mortgage payments, missed car payments, things like that. It's great for taxes as well. Right, exactly, uh, unpaid tax debts, franchise tax board, EDD, things like that. And uh, the unsecured debt you may have, depending on your income, may get zero, may get 5%, may get 7 cents on the dollar. You know, it all depends. So I filed this first chapter 13 and in every bankruptcy there is what's called the initial meeting of creditors, it's called a 341A, it's under a three, four, section 341A of the bankruptcy code. And we attend this meeting with the person who files, known as the debtor, and this is a meeting where the, there's a trustee who gets to ask questions and it's a chance for creditors to appear and they can also ask some questions and you know, it's, it's a mandatory meeting that everybody has to attend. So I show up at my first 341A with this first Chapter 13 client and one of the people who worked for the Chapter 13 trustee at the time named Ellen Latch, or we call her Elle, kind of like pulled me on the side and said, you know, look, I know you're new and this really isn't the very best filing I've ever seen, she says, but you seem like a nice enough guy. So what you really should do is talk to the guy standing over there and she points over at Nate. And just tell them Ellen sent you over, and, uh, you know, maybe it'll all, it'll all get better. And sure enough, I, I took her advice, gladly, glad that I did. Uh, and this is where I, so this is how I met Nate. Uh, Nate was really, really helpful to me, especially in those beginning cases, when, you know, while I was really out there trying to get my bearings on the different types of issues that can come up. And, you know, Nate's also done a lot of creditor representation and instead of being um, very adverse or confrontational, he was always very easy to talk to and, and very understanding and uh, that made a huge difference and enabled me to finally get to a point where I could practice you know without you know faltering on so many things and the cases got better, but as time went on, Nate and I always stayed in touch and uh consider him a friend and a, and a colleague and so so this is how I met uh Nate so Now, given everybody the background, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the things going on now today uh, in the bankruptcy world. And one of the things that uh, is coming up now more and more is this idea of homestead exemption and short sale carve-outs and what the debtor or the person filing is entitled to and what he's not. So I'm going to ask Nate now to chime in and Nate, maybe... Explain to our audience, what what is your homestead exemption, and and, and how does that work in bankruptcy in Chapter 7?
1: In Chapter 7, you get a homestead exemption for your house. If you've got equity in your home, um, there's two different sets of code sections. You've got the 703 codes, and you've got the 704 codes. If you've got a lot of equity in your home, you want to use the 704 codes, because for a family... um, a married couple gets a $100,000 exemption. If you're over 55 years of age, disabled, have um, income of about $25,000 for the household, or if you're over 65, you get a $175,000 exemption. So it's important to use these exemptions to your advantage because if you don't use them, the trustee's going to you know, try to do something with your property and sell it. If you've got exemptions less than... I, I'm sorry, if you've got... Um, Equity in your property less than maybe twenty five, thirty thousand dollars. You want to use the seven hundred three code sections to give you the advantage on that part. So use whichever codes you need to for your advantage.
0: Oh, and so what? What? How does it? So how does it work? If I if I file Chapter Seven because let's say I've got an enormous amount of credit card debt or medical bills, you know, unpaid medical bills or you know things like that. And I own a house and I've got some equity in my house. You know, so what what typically would happen? Because what I I do think is going on is I I do think Chapter 7 trustees now are much more aggressive in attacking those exemptions than they used to be. And I think there's a lot more question uh, into the property values as the market kind of continues to rise, uh, the property market. I think Chapter 7 trustees are very hesitant to just look at the amount you list as your value and accept it. So how does this all kind of come into play with a Chapter 7 trustee? What do they do?
1: What the Chapter 7 trustee is doing is they're looking to see what exemptions you put out there. And they only have 30 days from the conclusion of a 341 meeting of creditors to file an objection to your exemptions. So they want to make sure, for one thing, a lot of people might move into a house right before the filing. Um, because you have to live in your house in order to claim the 704 homestead exemption to get your 100000 of equity exempted or 175000 whatever it is. So that's where the trustees are starting to ask questions, I think, of when did you move into the house? Do you live in the house as of the date of the filing? If you're not living there, you might not get that homestead exemption. So that's the real important thing that they're looking to, and they want to see if they can get rid of any exemptions that don't seem proper, so they can try to sell the house without you getting any money from it.
0: Now, that seems like a pretty harsh thing for a Chapter Seven trustee to do, right? I mean, here's a guy that plans. comes in, right? Well, here's a guy that comes in, and you know, he's he's not making enough to pay all of his bills. He's young, know, but he keeps his house and. Maybe it's a house he bought 20 years ago and, you know, it's the only family home he's ever owned. And uh, here he's got, you know, maybe a little bit more than the exempted amount of equity. Is, is, is somebody at risk of losing their home? Will, will a trustee sell that house?
1: Um, it's rare that it's happening, but there are some trustees that are starting to do stuff like that where if there's um, no equity in the property or they can do a short sale and try to work out something with the mortgage company and take a lesser amount, get a broker who's going to take a lesser percentage for their fees and try to sell the property. Um, it's not happening as much, but it is starting to co- come more and more because there aren't a lot of properties out there with a lot of equities and the trustees are hurting for you know, their fees too.
0: So that's really interesting that you say that because I also, I have a case right now where there, the the Chapter 7 debtor owns a property that is significantly upside down with no equity we put in for their full homestead exemption as a matter of course it's their primary residence and this is a woman who who was happens to be over 65 and is disabled (coughs) excuse me so she would get the maximum uh, exemption and the trustee is negotiating a short sale and a carve out and i'm fighting with the trustee back and forth um, because the trustee wants to offer like forty thousand dollars as relocation or something like that, and my feeling is no. If you're getting a two hundred twenty-five thousand uh, dollar carve out, that one seventy-first, 170, one seventy-five goes to them. Right, that's their homestead. That they, they would get that anyway. If you carve out uh, money from a short sale, isn't that like equity? And recent cases seem to be going in that direction here in the Central District. There have been a couple of recent cases where the judges have held that if a trustee is successful in negotiating a carve out that carve out is like equity and the homestead exemption applies so now i'm wondering how how often this is going to continue happening cuz <clears throat> to be a, excuse me to be a chapter 7 trustee it's like you're in business for yourself and it may not be worth it to go forward and do these anymore if you're not going to really generate what's what's supposed to be money for quote the estate which is essentially all the different creditors that are present in a particular bankruptcy.
1: And that's where I think they're going to have the problems, because they've got to give you, especially in your situation with the lady who's over 65 years of age, they've got to give her the first 175000 from any sale. So I don't see why they would want to do anything, because there's no money for them to get to. The whole idea of a trustee selling an asset is to pay creditors. If they can't pay a creditor, uh, maybe... You or any other attorney should be filing a motion to abandon that asset and take it before the judge. So the judge says there's no equity in this property, leave it alone, and take it out of the estate now.
0: And we may end up having to do that in this particular case. If, the, if I can't get the trustee to sign off and get on board on the homestead exemption, uh, I may file a motion to compel her to pay the homestead exemption if she's going to conclude the short sale, yeah. given the numbers that she's, she's talking about. So it's so it's an interesting thing. I can tell you that without naming names, the very same trustee is also filing motions for turnover of small, unexempt portions of income tax returns uh, refunds that really? people have gotten. Yes,
1: I've heard about that too. A
0: couple thousand dollars. So either trustees are really hurting right now, and they're just yeah. you know. Is this a
1: trustee in Los Angeles or in Woodland Hills? Woodland Hills. Really, I, I've heard of Los Angeles um, trustees doing stuff like that, but not the. Um, Woodland Hills one.
0: Yeah, there, there's there's one in particular that's going on now where you know I'm seeing that on the court dockets, uh, and again we're talking about you know because for for the listening audience to know when you when you file bankruptcy there are certain assets that are exempt up to certain amounts automatically. So things like uh, household furniture uh, get a certain amount of exemption. Vehicles have a certain amount of exemption. An exemption means, by the way, that you're entitled to keep the value of that property without it being sold for the benefit of the creditors. So um, other things that, you know, your pensions, IRAs, uh, you know, SEP, uh, those types of retirement accounts are exempted and can't, can't be liquidated. And so often people will maximize their exemptions. Oh, and another thing that's worth mentioning that you also have what's called a wild card exemption which my understanding is can be used for about anything. So, you know, Nate, what, let, before, before we digress, what is the wildcard exemption? It sounds like a funny name. What, what is that, really?
1: It is. The wildcard, um, there's exemptions specifically carved out for furniture, for jewelry, for pension plans, for cars, life insurance policies. And then you get this amount of about uh, $26,925 or something right around that area for anything you want. So if you've got, uh, let's say you've got a car that's worth $5,000 and your exemption is only $2,500 for one car, you can use part of that wild card for another 2500 to protect the whole vehicle. So you can use it for anything.
0: So, you know, when I see these motions that the trustees are filing in the courts asking the judge to order that the debtor turn over non-exempt portions of their income tax refunds uh, I'm thinking one of two things either they didn't fully utilize the exemptions correctly because they could have applied parts of that wild card uh, to That's the right to the non-exempt portion okay. um, or they'd already applied it to something else that maybe they had a vehicle that was paid in full you know a valuable car and they've already applied everything that they could right and now they're kind of stuck but Really, it kind of it gets back to this idea that, you know, when I first started practicing in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, we didn't see stuff like this. Trustees were so busy. Chapter seven trustees were so busy. There were so many cases being filed that, unless there was some really egregious asset being hidden, or you know, some very very aggressive creditor, and I've had a case like that too, where Mm -hmm. you know uh, the person filing. I'll, I'll use the air quotes. Forgot to uh, tell me about property he owned out of the country, uh, but one of his main creditors sure remembered, and that became a whole affair. But you know, but when, but other than like, things like that coming up, you know, you, trustees were just busy. You, you know, your three forty-one A's would last a couple minutes, and they would have to get through the list. Today, uh, maybe because filings are down, trustees are taking a much more active role and paying much more attention to. All your initial documents, anybody who's self employed, you know, profit and loss statements, uh, twelve months worth of bank statements, I and mean, they really you know. looking to see what
1: more they can get. I think a lot of it also has to do besides um, the low filing and bankruptcies, it's the jurisdictional aspect. They changed the zip codes about three years ago or so to take uh for San Fernando Valley area, they took everything from Santa Clarita North through Lancaster, which used to go to Woodland Hills um, Bankruptcy Court, they sent those to Los Angeles Court. So that took away about 30%. Just a couple months ago, they took away about another 10% by sending certain zip codes that were going to Woodland Hills to Santa Barbara. So I know the trustees have gotten very upset, and I've spoken to some of them. And so they've lost a lot of business just in the Woodland Hills Bankruptcy Court. So they're looking for anything they can get to stay afloat.
0: Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting that, you know, the tr- a trustee is, is, in a way, you know, he works for, a trustee, he or she works for the estate. When I say the estate, what I mean is when a bankruptcy is filed, any chapter of bankruptcy, it creates what's called an estate, which means that the person filing isn't really in control anymore right and then this trustee kind of comes in in chapter seven cases specifically uh, and kind of takes over and is there to administer the assets of that estate but the goal is to do so for the benefit of creditors and while, while people individuals that file get the get a benefit themselves in a, in that they alleviate themselves from their debt or they get you know they get this degree of debt relief the purpose of a chapter seven trustee is to see if anything can be liquidated for the benefit of the creditors of that person. So believe it or not, it actually creates a good balance. It's kind of how it should be. You know, the debtor gets a benefit by hopefully getting all of his debt wiped out and getting a fresh start. Creditors get the benefit of having this independent trustee come on board, really take a look at the assets in the case, if any, and determine if creditors can benefit from those assets. Now when you have cases that are individual chapter 11 cases oftentimes the person filing can serve as their own trustee and that's called a debtor in possession and they're supposed to act in the you know to the best benefit of their own estate of course that's a little less balanced because they you know typically people don't really understand the role that they're playing uh in that respect and uh You know, they'll often do things that really are for their own benefit only and, you know, for the detriment of everybody else.
1: And just so the audience uh, remembers, when you're trying to file a Chapter 7 or a Chapter 13, whatever it might be, you're trying to get rid of the unsecured debt and any other debt that might be secured that you don't want anymore. Like, let's say you want to give up your house and surrender it or you want to surrender a car. That's considered secured debt, you can you have a choice of keeping it and continuing with payments if there's not a lot of equity in it and it's protected, or you can just give it up and stuff. So that's where the important thing is, the unsecured debt to secured debt.
0: So Nate, would you what, what advice would you give for, you know, to anyone who now may be facing what we what we think is gonna be a second round of mortgage modification adjustments or interest rate adjustments. Um, people that maybe are now just beginning to see equity again in their properties, uh, but still feel like they're overwhelmed or they've, you know, they've got a ton of debt. You know, what would be the right uh, advice today? You know, given our current market.
1: Well, depending on what they're doing, if um, loan modification is adjusting or something like that, they've got to look at their financials and see if they're going to be able to continue with that mortgage payment because it's now increased. They had maybe a couple of years where they had a low benefit of having to make a monthly payment, and now it's kicked into the next phase, and the interest rate is going up a percentage point or one and a half points, and now they have to pay more. So if there's a lot of equity in the property, they might not be able to do a Chapter 7 to save that property. They're going to have to do a Chapter 13, but what they might want to do is try getting another loan modification and going through that to save that property.
0: And what, what are the rules now with people that are in active uh, loan mod application status as far as foreclosures? Because I know the, the Homeowners Bill of Rights that was enacted a couple of years ago addresses that a little bit. But for the audience, tell them what can they expect uh, to happen if they decide they want to reapply for a loan mod or, or apply for the first time?
1: Well, I think it was January 2013, the Homeowner Bill of Rights um, in California specifically stated you can't have a loan modification ongoing and a foreclosure going on at the same time. So if uh, a foreclosure was started against you and you start a loan modification, the bank has to stop um, with their foreclosure process and continue with the loan modification until you get a declination letter where they're saying we're not going to do it anymore. You don't qualify I've heard people, you know, they don't qualify. They just start another loan modification with another place, and the cycle just keeps on going. So they just keep going through loan modification, through loan modification, until they can get it right. But you can't foreclose on that property while a loan modification is going, going on.
0: Well, that's a risk also because for for somebody who continually uh, applies for loan mod after loan mod, uh, you know, the arrears on that property, meaning the missed payments continue to increase each and every month, and I think that it becomes less and less likely that they'll successfully reorganize because the amount of the pool of debt that they're going to have to pay becomes, you know, exorbitant to the extent where they can't afford it.
1: Right. And just so everybody knows, when you're trying to do a loan modification, you're obviously behind on arrears on the mortgage payments. So you're trying to get the um, bank to take those arrears and put them to the back of the loan or restructure the loan where they maybe forgive a little bit. you know. Some people are able to get it where the bank goes ahead and says, we're going to forgive $100,000 of that debt, and now instead of paying $350,000, you'll pay us $250,000. There's different ways the bank does it. Sometimes they'll say, okay, you've got a loan, let's say $500,000. Your interest rate is going to be 3% on $250,000. The other $250,000 is just going to be sitting there unless you sell the house or it's foreclosed on. So, you know, there's different ways that banks do it um, to help out the homeowners.
0: So what you're describing is like a deferred principal or a bifurcated, you know, principal where...
1: Bifurcation of it or um, deferred principal balance or forgiving part of it. Now you get taxed on it from the um, IRS and stuff, but better than paying a $100,000 loan with interest at
0: 5%. So really so I guess, I guess I guess what we're saying here is that there are still options available for people that either previously modified but they're set to adjust or they haven't yet modified they keep going through this perpetual cycle but their debt just continues to increase month after month the longer they wait <clears throat> and So I I, want to switch topics now real quick. I I, I mean, this is all still related to bankruptcy, and, and this is now more about Chapter 13. And one of the things that very, very much used to sell Chapter 13s to people, and when I say it, I don't mean like a used car salesman would sell. In other words, what I mean is one of the benefits that Chapter 13 provided for people that was a very, very, uh, strong selling point in making their decision was, was is what we call lien stripping. Lean stripping is think of it more in terms of f- first think of it philosophically if I bought a house for four hundred thousand dollars and I have a mortgage on my house for three eighty and then I took a second mortgage for another hundred back when everybody thought property values were super high. And now I come back today and it turns out that my house is only worth 310. So I've got, I owe more on the first mortgage than the property itself is worth. And then I've still got this second mortgage. And so the idea behind lien stripping philosophically is, well how can a second mortgage be considered secured or secured debt when there's not even a single dollar of equity to secure it with? So if my house is worth three hundred and ten thousand and I owe three hundred and eighty on a first mortgage, what equity secures the second? So philosophically the question is, well, can it really be is it really secure debt and then can we treat it differently? And so now I'm gonna ask our, our very special guest in bankruptcy knowledge extraordinaire to help explain to our audience what is lean stripping and what it what you know, what is that what's the practical effect in a chapter thirteen? What's the benefit to the debtor, the person filing?
1: The main benefit is you get to treat that debt in the bankruptcy as unsecured, just like your credit cards, medical bills, personal loans, and stuff of that nature. What you have to do, and depending on the court that you're in, is file a special motion to um, deem that debt unsecured by proving what the value is by an appraisal, or some judges might accept a declaration or a broker's price opinion or something, and you attach all the documents to the motion to show the court that the house is worth less than what you owe to the first mortgage. As long as you get an order from the court saying, this is the value in um, Eric's uh, uh, example, $310,000 value with $380,000 first mortgage, that second for $100,000 can be um, considered unsecured and paid, if anything, with the other unsecured creditors. And now you've got a benefit When your plan is completed, meaning the three to five year payment period, you get that debt wiped out and it's no longer a lien on your property. So property values start going up and I've got a lady I just talked to last night and her value is going up and she's just about finished with her five year plan because she filed in 2009. Her equity is back to what it was uh, pre-2006, 2007. And she gets that benefit because as of the time of the filing of the bankruptcy, Her property was worth less than what she owed to the first.
0: Wait a minute. So are you telling our five listeners that somebody who consciously took a second mortgage or a home equity line of credit for hundreds of thousands of dollars can get that wiped out and treated just like their typical Visa or MasterCard in a Chapter 13?
1: That's what I'm telling you. And if the fifth listener wakes up, he'll hear the benefit of this one, too.
0: That's a good point. I don't know if the fifth listener's up yet or not. It's a, if I count all four, if, if I count my mom, my dad, my brother, you know, and and my wife, that's the four right there. So you know, maybe uh, Daniel in my office will be number five, and Pauline will be number it's, six.
1: It's a great tool in the bankruptcy that everybody should be aware about.
0: Well, so all right, so let me let me wrap up this last segment uh, on the on lean stripping by saying it like this: there are still many people out there who bought overpriced properties when the market was red hot and banks were lending money left and right to anybody with a social security number and a pulse it's really all you needed there are ways to deal with some of these bad loans and HELOCs uh, second trust deeds and still preserve the initial property you bought and ultimately have equity back in that property you know a lot of people nate they buy property because this only applies by the way to the listening audience this only applies to your primary residence meaning the home that you live in right. this this doesn't count for rental properties or things like that
1: that's a whole different
0: topic right yeah we can talk about cram downs on a different day and things right. like that but so if this is your home and you live in it and this is where you're raising your family and this is gonna be your retirement nest egg, which was, you know, up until recently, that was the that was what people bought a home for. They would buy a home with a 30-year fixed mortgage and at the end of 30 years, they would be paid off and that equity or that value was their retirement uh, or part of. They didn't have uh, constant refinancing. They didn't have lines of credit. They didn't have interest-only loans, you know, back in the good old days. Right. The very first house my wife and I ever bought was in Northridge. We got a 30-year fixed at 7.5%, and that was supposed to be a great deal at the time. That was a yeah. great loan. Of course, the house was only $198,000, which is still a lot of money, but if you think about it compared to, you know, you can't buy a condo in, uh, you know, the worst neighborhood around for $190,000 right. anymore. Mm-hmm. So everything, I guess, is relative. Um, but I guess what we're saying is there are there are still avenues that can be explored uh, to help people get get past the what, what seems to be the unsurmountable task of reorganizing their debt. And there are professionals out there like Nathan uh, who have been involved in this area of practice of law for the better part of 20 years on the scene or more uh, that really, really know what they're doing and. Um, so I want to I want to take that last segue into uh, the last our last little topic of the of the podcast and really what I like to do uh, especially when I have attorney guests. Now Nate's the very first attorney guest I've had on. Uh, for those four or five of you that have listened already, you know that I've had some IT professional on before. That was really by uh, uh, by necessity since I'd, I'd had a server crash that last time. Uh, but Nate's our first professional attorney guest. And what I want to do is I want to just ask Nate, uh, and it's going to be a tough question to answer because your career uh, at this point spans over 20 years and, you know, you're still out there uh, actively practicing every day, but can you think or remember one of the, just the craziest cases you've had, one of the, and, and when I say crazy, I don't necessarily mean difficult or, or you know, complicated with the courts. I mean, just circumstances were strange, the you know, they, they had some kind of odd, you know, career or job, something. Just, you know, just a crazy case that you got, you know, sucked into somehow.
1: Yeah, I can think of one particular case. and then like to give an example of something else that happened in court um, that is a little bit strange and funny as well. But I had a case with um, a pension plan from someone who worked with the government, and it was a, um, a thrift savings plan. And this must have been back in 95, 96 or something like that. And the trustee was trying to take my client's thrift savings plan because there was no exemption for it. We're trying to say it's a pension plan, you can't touch it. And I've put it down that it's not property of the estate, so nobody can get to it. trustee was adamant they're going to go for it, and they went for it. They filed a motion to try to get that thrift savings plan. We had Judge uh, Kathleen Thompson at the time and we went back and forth with arguing and everything going on and the hardest part was to try to find that thrift savings plan because I had to call back to New York to find people who created the plan and stuff like that and nobody could find anything. So we went to court a month, month and a half later and the judge looked at it and she said, you know, I've got a thrift savings plan as part of the government and I have no idea where this is either and couldn't find it anywhere. So the judge granted the motion, and my client was going to lose her thrift savings plan. Well, I kept on digging still because I was waiting for information uh, to come from other people, and we finally found where the thrift savings plan was, and it was in the United States Codes, Title V. Nobody had any idea about this, so I filed a motion to, um, you know, a motion to... um, was it? Um, reconsider. To reconsider Based on newly found evidence And we went through it I brought in the title codes Brought in everything um, The judge took it under consideration she, This was right before one of the holidays One of the big holidays or something And she looked at everything The trustee was pissed off that I'm filing this motion But she said you know what I'm going to take this over a nice warm fire And I'm going to look up these codes And come back to you for a decision and she came back uh, a couple of weeks later after the hearing, and she reversed her decision and said, "There's enough evidence to show that thrift savings plan is a pension plan enacted by the Internal Revenue Code, and trustee can't get to it." So that was it. Was frustrating. It was a lot of headaches going on, and you know I felt bad for my client, but I had to do whatever I could to try to. Find out how I'm going to save it.
0: Well, that's a major victory for your client. I mean, because you're ta- you're right. clearly talking about a considerable amount of money.
1: It was a considerable amount. It was about for her. I mean, considerable. It was about seventy-five, eighty thousand dollars or so. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's a considerable amount because, uh, you know, if it were a couple of thousand dollars, most people wouldn't bother fighting it at that point. They'd rather right. get through their bankruptcy and just move on. And you, right. you know, you can always. It's a whole lot easier to replace a couple thousand in savings over the next year than it is, you know, eighty. So hey, that's a huge victory.
1: So that that was my mo- one of my most stressful ones, but that was you know I thought it, like you're saying a good victory and took a lot of headache and but workouts and we got it done.
0: One one quick story you said that was Judge Thompson right who, right. who helped you know presided over that case. So when I you know one of my very first cases that had an adversary proceeding attached was also with Judge Thompson, and I, I found her to be great. I mean she was a fantastic sitting judge. Uh, and I actually always did well with her in her courtroom, but one Sunday, just out of the blue, uh, I took my wife and uh, our two daughters, this is before, you know, and and our son was an infant at the time, uh, to the sagebrush cantina here in Calabasas. And, uh, you know, and I sat down and we were having our little brunch and everything's great. And there's all these motorcycles, you know, lined up when you go there, there's like a a lot of bikers and so as we're leaving I see this like sort of like short cropped red curly haired woman get on this big Harley and, and fire it up and I looked and it's Judge Thompson and I was you know I, I couldn't so funny She's You an avid
1: bike rider yeah I just yeah.
0: never you know I never knew that and I just of course I saw it with my own eyes I said, oh my gosh now of course at that point I was also pretty new to the practice and I didn't feel comfortable just like you know running up and patting her on the <laughs> back of her leather jacket or you know whatever and saying hi but uh Later, I did. You know, uh, the next time I was in court, uh, I did confirm that with a couple other attorneys. Like, hey, is it possible that they, you know? Oh yeah, Judge Thompson. She she's been writing for years and yeah, a long time. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll share with you a funny, also like one of my funny stories or or scary stories or what have you. So you remember earlier we were talking about uh, you have to attend what's called the three forty one A, which is what's you know the meaning of creditors and in chapter seven. Uh, usually they go pretty quick unless there's, what I've found in the, in, in the, past is that if there's, uh, some sort of personal debt or private loan made where somebody takes the bankruptcy very personally, uh, they're the first ones that appear and start screaming fraud and, you know, all these things. And usually it's not, but you know, people don't know better and they, they get very offended that they loan their friend money and now their friend is going bankrupt on them, um. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, like ninety percent of the time, ninety nine percent of the time, no creditors really appear to ask questions or argue it. They, you know, c- certain c- you know certain situations warrant it, but generally not. Anyway, I had this Chapter Seven case, and we go through our we go to the three forty one A, and the debtor shows up, and everything's fine, and you know we sit down at the uh, where the trustee is, and the trustee starts asking his questions, and one of the standard questions is, you know, did you list all your assets and all your debts and You know, is your income correct? Do you want to change anything? And so when the trustee gets to the question about the income and is the income listed correct, the guy, I mean, out of nowhere just says, oh, well, yeah, but I I didn't include the cash. (laughs) So all of a sudden, so like now, you know, the whole room looks up, right? Because like who would be like who says something like that, you know? And, of course, the trustee's eyes immediately light up. And uh, the trustee says, well, uh, so what what cash are you referring to? And the debtor proceeds to tell the trustee in, in, you know, in the open room in front of everybody on the record that he is a special FBI informant uh, and gets paid cash to point the FBI agents in the direction of certain criminal elements. And of course, you know, as the story went on, the the facts and the details became more and more inconsistent and, I mean, it was either some sort of sick, weird fantasy this guy was having or, or who knows, if you know, maybe he just was, didn't take the right dose of his medication that morning, but whatever it was, but I, I tell you, I mean, things like that come up and you just, you know, you think you know your
1: clients, you think you know what's going on and you have no idea because when they get before the trustee, all of a sudden, even though you tell them, you know, this is, you're under penalty of perjury, so tell me everything that's going on they have a different light when it comes before the
0: trustee or the judge. So now tell you were going to tell me now a funny court story, because um, I, I got one to tell you too, but you got to tell me. I don't know if
1: you've heard about this one before with Judge Mutt. Um, it was a chapter 13, which is the reorganization. Um, an old, an elderly lady is trying to save her home. And they're at the meeting of creditors first, and the trustee just thinks something's up and orders uh, I think the... Um, The son actually had come for the mother because the mother was very ill. So the trustee has to examine the debtor who filed the bankruptcy. So they ordered the the mother to appear in court. So um, we're at the court hearing, and if anything can get funnier, that day there's a high school that comes in with their kids looking at, um, you know, just judge day and see what what happens uh, in a court proceeding. So you've got about 50 kids on the right side of this judge's room. The rest of us attorneys are on the left side, and we're all watching everything going on. It gets to this hearing, and this old lady is in, sitting in the back of the room in a wheelchair, and mm-hmm. it's hot outside. And it's, it's a little bit hot in the court, too, but she's wearing a flannel um, um, blanket on her and just something's strange so the she her case gets called she comes up to the podium and the judge is just looking at her and knows something is not right and says to her you know um i i hate to do this but we have female guards is it okay if we go ahead and search you because the judge is not believing that this woman is a woman especially there's uh it looks like there's five o'clock shadow and oh, no. there's an Adam's apple A little bit there <laughs> So how, however it turns out I think the person leaves Doesn't go through the search From one of the lady um, guards And it turned out that the Son th- Was acting as the mother Because the mother had passed away already And he was trying to save the house
0: Oh no. The only way to do it
1: Because it was under the mother's name And title under there Was to file for the dead mother so that's what happened in court, and it could—I mean, kids are in this room <laughs> looking—is oh, this what bankruptcy is all about? Right. I'm wow. Getting into
0: this. Well, you know, my my funny court story is not nearly as interesting as that, uh, but my my funny court story takes place in uh, the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Santa Barbara, with uh, Judge Riblet, and for the five of you who are listening, you know, I personally have had great success in Judge Riblet's court and it's a it was a rocky start i think anybody that begins practicing up in santa barbara went through that with judge riblet oh, yeah. it was a rocky start but you know once i sort of proved my worth it was smooth sailing ever since and you really get to know uh, her you know and she's since retired but you get to know her courtroom and her procedures and kind of the way she likes things done and you know she used to sanction attorneys a hundred bucks a pop all the time for you know wrong colored tabs on their folders and you know the Motions you filed. No tabs. Right, or no tabs. No right, No paperwork,
1: paperwork sem- filed uh, or sent to the judge.
0: Yeah, I mean, hundreds of dollars over the course of several years, you know, and, and I'm not the only one, lots of us, lots of us. But one particular day, so some judges, so the listening audience knows, some judges are not adverse to an attorney utilizing their cell phone or their laptop while they're in court waiting for their case to be heard or waiting for their turn online. Think of it like that. And as long as your phone is on silent or, you know, you're quiet and you're in your corner, you know, a lot of judges really don't mind and they don't care. Judge Riblett, however, had a rule that all phones were off and could not be used in court. You showed up. And computers. That's right. No computers, no cell phones, no tablets. That's it. You showed up. You were there for however long you were there for. And when your case was done or your matter was heard, then you could leave and turn your phone back on. So, one afternoon, it was a Chapter 13 confirmation calendar day. That means that the courtroom was packed. You know, it was not a basic motion day. There was a lot of attorneys there, a lot of clients, making sure the plan payments were being made and making sure every last thing was possibly filed and checking in. And Judge Riblett uh, was very, very what I'll call old school in that you couldn't just check in with the trustee and say, okay, everything's in order, you can go, your case will be confirmed. You had to show up. You had to, you had to sit there and wait. Your turn. That's right. You had to wait your turn. And we're talking about hundreds of people on any mm-hmm. given day. Uh, you had to wait your turn. You had to state your appearance. You had to go through the confirmation. She reviewed your plan. You know, that's how she was. And you know, God bless her. I also believe she read every single piece of paper that ever crossed she her desk.
1: Did. Uh, no doubt.
0: Yeah, she had never. She was never once uninformed of any filing or pleading. So. Kudos, because I, I don't think we see enough of that. But I digress. So one, so one day, you, were, you know, I'm in this chapter 13 confirmation day, and you know, there usually there's a marshal that also sits in Judge Riblet's courtroom, or that sat in Judge Riblet's courtroom to make sure that you didn't turn your phone on or you didn't, you know, you didn't get out of line. Well, somebody I guess put a phone on, and was kind of like huddled in the corner. This is an, an attorney that I didn't, I hadn't seen before. I didn't know who he was, and. All of a sudden, the courtroom is pretty quiet, you know, because Judge Riblet's on the bench. All of a sudden, you hear noise like a 1970s porno movie with the, the screaming and the heavy breathing. And you see this guy in the corner start fumbling around and quickly, like, turns his phone off and hides it. And so the, the entire courtroom was just stunned. And Judge Riblet, from the bench, asks quite nicely who that was. And this poor guy just, you know, kind of like put his little hand up and she took his phone and she took, took it away and he could go get it at the end of the calendar. That was what she, you know, would do. So, you know, this poor guy either got some sort of unexpected email. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say that, you know, he wasn't, uh, that wasn't planned, uh, you know. But that I guess that's my my little funny court story. And
1: when Eric's talking about at the end of the calendar, wherever you were in the calendar with Judge Riblet confirmations were long so started at 10 o'clock your case might not be called till 330 4 thirty in the late afternoon and that's happened so if your phone was taken away you didn't get it until you left
0: <laughs> yeah and that you know in the in the days where chapter 13 filings were so prevalent uh, you would often have those very very long long days so we're, we're, we're approaching uh, about our hour mark and so what I want to do uh, now Nate is just uh, for, for those out there listening if if a consumer uh, finds themselves in trouble uh, or they need a consultation they have a question, how can they get a hold of you? How can they tap into your 20 plus years of experience? Well,
1: um, I'm out in the Thousand Oaks area, practice all over in Los Angeles, Santa Barbara and the Woodland Hills Bankruptcy Courts. My phone number is 805-492-7045 or they can email me at um, ntd Burnerman, which is B-E-R-N-E-M-A-N at Verizon.net. And I'd like to help anybody with any questions even if they've got.
0: Well, so there you have it. We, uh, we've been privileged uh, enough to spend the last hour with uh, Nate Burnerman. Again, the, the very, very first uh, attorney that I met when I began practicing bankruptcy. He was extremely helpful to me. And for those of you listening, that should tell you something because, one, if he knows enough to guide another attorney in the right direction, he f- certainly knows enough to handle your your consumer problem or or issue that comes up, uh, you know, anything related to debt relief or, you know, uh, assistance with evaluating whether or not bankruptcy is a good option for you. Well, thanks um, for
1: having me on. Uh, it. No, it's been my
0: pleasure. I appreciate you making the time to come out here. Uh, and uh, so, again, thank you very much, uh, Nate. Thank you.